Philippians chapter 16. We're looking at the second part of a sermon entitled Christ Honoring Gospel Motivated Giving. And it's in our text this morning that I want you to see that, that giving, giving of your resources, giving of your finances, not just your time, but your finances, your resources, is one of the ways that you can honor and worship the one who gave himself for you. And this passage here is going to challenge each one of us. Sermons on giving always challenge me. I don't know about you. They always challenge me. And, and so there's three ways that I pray that the Lord will challenge you in your giving. Give to bring honor to Christ. Give as a steward of God. And give as an act of worship to God. Let's look at the text. We'll pray and then we'll dive in. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so do you also. On the first day of the week, each one of you is to put aside and save as he may prosper so that no collections be made when I come. When I arrive, whomever you may approve, I will send them with letters to carry your gift to Jerusalem. And if it is fitting for me to go also, they will go with me. Father, as we open your word, it's your voice we long to hear. It's your son that we long to be like. And we know that your spirit will use your word to make us more like him. More like you, our Heavenly Father, who gave, gave His only Son. Make us generous in Christ, through Christ, and by Your Spirit, so we'd bring honor and glory to You, the One who gave His Son for us, to redeem us and save us from condemnation. We give You thanks in Christ's name. Amen. So, having spent chapter 15 on the matter of the bodily resurrection of believers... So Paul has addressed the last of the matters now that he deemed essential. And so Paul is beginning his final approach here. He's ready to bring this letter in for a landing. He still has a couple of matters remaining that were most likely the questions, questions that the Corinthians had asked Paul in a letter that they wrote to him. So they wanted to know about how they were to go up about their part in a collection to help some fellow Christians facing some difficult circumstances. Specifically, how they are to go about it and how the collected funds are to be delivered. Those are the, those are the two questions that they want an answer to. So Paul gives no details here. You'll see in, in the text that we just read, he gives no details here except that they were saints, he says. Now, concerning the collection for the saints, and we looked at this term last week, we saw that this is a term that's synonymous in the scriptures with Christians. Saints are God's people on the earth who are set apart from the world, excuse me, for God's purposes. Even though Paul gives no details as to the identity of the saints, he's referring to uh, people that the Corinthians clearly know. He doesn't need to go into those details. They understand who it is. And so for our part, we spent a little time last week looking at some relevant texts to try to determine who these people were and what the circumstances were that they were facing because the context of who he's talking about 
has a big deal on why he's saying what he's saying and doing what he's doing and urging them to participate. So um, about a year or so before writing 1 Corinthians, um, Paul wrote the churches in Galatia to correct an attack that was taking place on the gospel there. The Gentiles were, they were being drawn away from the simple gospel of salvation by faith alone, in Christ alone, by those who said that essentially that Gentiles must first be circumcised in order to be saved. So in other words, they needed to become Jews before they could become Christians. That was the, that was the, that was the challenge and the problem that Paul faced in Galatia. And he was writing to them to correct this problem. And in the letter, Paul references, in, in his letter to the Galatians, he references the trip that he and Barnabas took up to Jerusalem and how the apostles who were there, they affirmed the gospel that they were preaching amongst the Gentiles and no requirements of the law should be put upon the Gentiles. We're not going to put the burden of the law, which represented by circumcision, we're going to put that on the Gentiles when it was too burdensome for us. Justification before God was by faith alone, not by keeping the law. The only thing that 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 the, um, the pillars of the faith, as he called the pillars of the church, as Paul referred to them, the only thing that they asked of Paul was that he not forget, he and Barnabas not forget, he called, they called them the poor in their ministry. The very thing, Paul says, that he was also eager to do. Paul, don't forget the poor in their ministry. Paul says, you don't even need to tell me twice. I'm already eager to do this. Now, were they referring to the poor in general? Paul, just keep, keep your eyes out for the poor. Or to some specific group. I would, I would say the answer is made clearer by Paul when he wrote his letter to the Romans, the church in Rome. And he wrote not too long after his first and second letters to the Corinthians. So this is not long after this time. And it's there in that letter in chapter 15 where Paul makes mention of the church's in Macedonia and Achaia, so we're talking about predominantly Gentile churches. And he says, they've made a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. So here, Paul links the poor with the saints in Jerusalem. And so it would appear that there were a number of Christians who were in need, who were in the church in Jerusalem. So being in Jerusalem... Most, if not all, of these Christians, these saints, were going to be Jews. Jews who had chose to follow Christ as the Messiah. So I think there's good reason here to see that, first of all, the poor among the saints in Jerusalem, and secondly, the poor that the apostles didn't want Paul to forget about, and thirdly, the saints for whom this collection was being gathered in Corinth, these are all the same folks. It's the poor who are in Jerusalem in the church there. Now, as to the circumstances that created this need among the saints in Jerusalem, we know in Acts chapter 6 that the church in Jerusalem had a significant number of widows that they were ministering to. These were women who had no one to provide for them. In addition, we're, we're told about in Acts chapter 11 how a prophet named Agabus prophesied about a great famine that was going to impact many throughout the Roman Empire. So these are two contributing factors that Scripture mentions that may have resulted in there being a significant number of poor Jewish Christians in the church of Jerusalem. 
Could then persecution, that it also affected many people and their livelihoods and so forth. But this is what we know about from Scripture. So if all this is the correct understanding of the historical circumstances at that time, this helps us understand why Paul was especially eager to remember these poor Jewish Christians in his ministry. See, Paul's ministry was taking the gospel to the Gentiles. And in so doing, Paul had already encountered a huge obstacle to the gospel in Jews accepting that God was saving Gentiles in the same way that he was saving Jews, right? By faith in Christ alone. So this is what Paul is addressing uh, when he wrote to the Galatians. So as Paul later wrote to the Ephesians, He says the glory of the gospel was that in Christ, he calls it the barrier, the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile has been broken down. What's interesting here is that this this is probably a reference to the very wall that separated Jew from Gentile in in the court of the temple. And he says that wall is being broken down by Christ. No more separation. Christ has made both Jews and Gentiles into one group who both therefore have access in one spirit to the Father. This mystery, as it's called, in, in also in Ephesians, in, in Ephesians three, the mystery is God is that that God is bringing to light through the apostle Paul's ministry. It was that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. There is no distinction between Jew and Gentile anymore in Christ. There's no distinction between these two ethnic groups in God's eyes. But while that was true in God's eyes, that was not yet the case in the eyes of the Jews and the Gentiles. Centuries of separation of Jews from Gentiles still had to be overcome. But for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of Christ's church, it had to be removed. You could not have Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians seeing themselves as separate In any way. See, in Christ, Gentiles and Jews were fellow heirs. They're fellow members of the body of Christ. But in practice, that wall, that dividing barrier that separated the two ethnic groups, Jew from Gentile, it was still there. And it needed to be broke down. As we saw with Peter in Antioch, right? That's the whole situation that Paul is addressing in the... the, um, Letters to the Galatians, what we saw there, Jew and Gentile, they couldn't even sit down and eat a meal together. But the gospel, that was, that was hindering the gospel. Right, so how was this wall going to be broken down? How would this be done? Well, what's impossible with man is possible with God. God sends a famine on the land. He sends persecution. He allows there to be many widows. In the Jerusalem church. And in these tragic circumstances, Paul sees a divinely provided opportunity. As Paul travels about the Roman Empire, he's preaching the gospel. He's establishing churches that are predominantly Gentile. He makes it his priority to encourage the Gentile churches to contribute generously to help meet the needs of these poor Jewish brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. He was eager, he said, to remember the poor. So this brings us to the first way that God wants to challenge us in our giving. 
is what we covered last week. But let me just remind you. Give to bring honor to Christ. When you give, you give to bring honor to Christ. God, can you see that, that for Paul, this collection of the saints, it was more than just an effort to bring relief to some Christians who were going through a difficult time. It was that, but it was much more. This provided the Corinthians in Corinth, as well as all the other Gentile churches, a divinely appointed opportunity to bring honor to God through their giving. And we can emulate this as well. Even though our circumstances are, are somewhat Somewhat different than what they were in the first century, aren't they? Well, first you bring honor to Christ when you prioritize advancing God's work. Give honor to Christ by prioritizing advancing God's work in your giving. This was to be a collection, he says, for the saints. And that term saints, it refers to Christians. It's the word hagias. It's it's saying a, a a Christian is someone who's been set apart for God for his purposes in the world. And God carries out his will And he carries out his purposes in the world primarily through his people, the saints. So to give to help the saints is to give to help advance the work of God that he is doing in the world through his people. Now, secondly, you honor God through your giving when you provide help for God's people. When you provide help for God's people with your giving, you're honoring God. We know God wants his people to abound in good works. And certainly giving to help needy Christians falls into that category. But remember, again, another, another aspect of the culture at that time is that in the Greco-Roman culture, the motivation for charitable giving, it was not seen as virtuous. Giving help to others was the way you displayed your virtue, your social standing, not your compassion. That's what motivated giving at that time, made you look good. Those you gave to, they were expected to repay you, not necessarily in money, but in public praise. Paul was calling them, though, to give to those who could not repay them. How could the Gentiles scattered throughout the Roman Empire be repaid with praise or honor by the poor saints in Jerusalem? They couldn't. But Paul was calling them to give because these ones couldn't repay them. They're hundreds of miles away in Jerusalem. In 2 Corinthians, Paul urged them to see their giving He calls it a gracious work that reflects the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. As a result of their giving, not only were the needs of the saints being fully supplied, but he says it was overflowing through many thanksgivings to God. Those who were receiving these gifts from the Gentile churches It was causing praise and thanksgiving to be made to God. The saints in Jerusalem, they weren't able to repay them with praise and honor. But instead, they were glorifying God for the obedience of these Gentile Christians because it confirmed something to them. Their confession of the gospel of Christ. These guys really are our brothers in Christ. They didn't have to do this. Look what they're doing. Look how abundantly and generously they're giving bringing praise and honor to Christ. But it also did one other vital thing, the very thing that Paul was eager for. The third way that you bring honor to God in your giving is to promote unity in God's church. Promote unity in God's church through your giving. See, remember Paul's concern? It was to bring down the barrier between Jewish and Gentile Christians. By God's providence, there's this great need amongst the Jewish believers that the Gentile Christians now could help 
alleviate. And the result of that giving was overflowing gratitude to God. But Paul mentions it was doing something else too. Paul tells the Corinthians, he tells them this in, the, in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, that the saints in Jerusalem, they were so blessed by their liberality, he calls it. The liberality of the giving of these Gentile churches in Macedonia. He's, he's, remember, 2 Corinthians is where he's urging the Corinthians to follow through with their plan to give. They kind of put the brakes on a little bit. And Paul says, don't do that, friends. And then he talks about how the other churches were giving. And they were giving liberally. And this was blessing the Christians in Jerusalem. And it says they were... Now, these Jewish believers, it says they were now praying on, on the behalf of these Gentile Christians. They were, he says they were yearning for them because of the surpassing grace of God in them. We see the grace of our God in you through your giving. God was being honored by this generous giving because as Gentile believers helped Jewish Christians in their desperate need, look what God was doing. He was knitting their hearts together. He was promoting and strengthening the unity of God's church. Paul even refers to this collection with the word koinonia, the word for fellowship. It emphasizes the communion that's created between people through giving and meeting of needs. And we can do the same by our giving too. right? This, this happens between our church. It happens between our church and other churches, other ministries, other missionaries, as God gives us the opportunity to support them and give towards them. See, our hearts can be knit together as unity and love are further built and promoted in the universal church, in Christ's church. But see, this can also happen on a personal level in our church. Do you feel like there's a wall of division between you and someone else, some other believer in the church? Someone you think doesn't love you? Or someone who thinks you don't love them? Ask God to give you an opportunity to do good to them. To meet some need that they have. Use your money. Use your money for what God intends it to be used for as a tool overcome differences. Not as a means for you to get whatever you want. As a tool. You can overcome differences and divisions. And you can knit your heart to others and promote unity in God's church. Okay, so that was last week. We're caught up now. That's the first way that this passage challenges us to give to bring honor to Christ. The second challenge is to give as a steward of God. Give as a steward of God. And this speaks to the mindset of the Christian towards giving, which we see in the matter-of-fact way that, that Paul calls upon the Corinthians to give. He just simply says, on the first day of the week, each one of you is to put aside and save as he may prosper. Right? He doesn't offer any explanation as to why they should give, only the expectation that they will. Now, as I emphasized last week, one of the characteristics of a Christian is that they learn how to give. Paul is approaching this question from the Corinthians with the assumption that, that God has changed their hearts, not only towards God, right? He's changed their hearts also towards their possessions. See, before you were saved, you saw your possessions 
as yours to do with as you please. I earned this. I could do with it whatever I want. But see, when God saves a person, He redeems them from a life of covetousness. Look at Colossians 3.5. We saw this last week, but I want your eyes on it again. Colossians chapter 3. Look at verse 5. Consider the members of your earthly body. Colossians 3, verse 5. Consider the members of your earthly body. He's talking to Christians here. As dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed. Right? That's the word there is covetousness. It could also be translated. It says that amounts to idolatry. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. And in them you also once walked when you were living in them. See, before you were a believer, this was, this was characteristic of your life. Immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed. Covetousness. Right? That's your former life, he says. That you once walked that way. No longer. What does God replace it with? He replaces it with a mindset of a steward. A steward is the manager of someone else's property. And so learning to give with a steward mindset begins when you realize that God owns everything. You need to realize that God owns everything. Psalm 24, verse 1, The earth is the Lord's and all it contains. See, God created everything. He has absolute rights of ownership over all things, and that includes your possessions, which are really God's. So friends, realizing that God owns everything, it's so important that if you miss this, if you miss this, it's like missing the top button on your shirt. Everything after that is going to be all messed up, out of line. And this is where you begin, because it defines your relationship to God. God owns it all. And you owe nothing. God doesn't owe you anything, and yet you owe Him everything. God doesn't even owe you your next breath. See, that's what you come to realize when God saves you and He shows you this grace. I was condemned. I was worthy of death. God has given me life. He's taken away the burden of my sin. He doesn't owe me anything. My very life is a result of the grace of God. God is the owner. You are nothing more than a manager. I am nothing more than a manager. And we are to take what God has entrusted to us and we are to use it for His purposes, for His glory. This is the mindset we find in King David. Look at First Chronicles 29. He, along with the leaders and the people of Israel, they had been given to uh, the building of the temple. That's why they were giving. And this is David's prayer, First Chronicles 29. This is the prayer he offered to God as the people had given for the building of the temple. He says, Blessed are you, O God of Israel, our Father forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. Indeed, everything that is in the heavens and on the earth. Yours is the dominion, O Lord. And you exalt yourself as head over all. Both riches and honor come from you. And you rule over all. And in your hand is power and might, and it lies in your hand to make great and to strengthen everyone. Now, therefore, our God, we thank you. 
We praise Your glorious name. But who am I? And who are my people that we should be able to offer as generously as this? For all things come from You and from Your hand we have given to You. See, when we give, we're not giving our riches. We're giving what belongs to God and we're giving it on His behalf and in His name. We're stewards of what God owns. And His expectation is that we will faithfully use it to accomplish His purposes. But this mindset is about more than possessions. It permeates every part of our life. God doesn't just own what I have. He owns me. He owns all that I am. Our lives are to be lived according to God's design, accomplishing God's purposes. I want my life aligned with the King and what He's doing. That means that my life and my possessions are to be about God's work, making disciples of the nations. Hasn't He commissioned His people to do this until He returns? That sounds like a priority to me. And it should be reflected in my giving. It should be reflected in... In your giving, everything you have is from God. It belongs to Him. You are a steward of your Master's resources. Are you faithfully managing His resources? Are you being a faithful steward? Are you giving God's resources and directing them towards His purposes? Or are you mainly using God's resources that He's had you to manage for your purposes? Your comfort. Your hobbies, your interests. How is that reflected in your giving? Now, realizing that God owns everything is going to lead to some changes, isn't it? Perhaps one of the first is that you need to repent from seeing God as your servant. Repent from seeing God as your servant. See, up until salvation, we were on the throne. God essentially existed to meet our needs, right? We might not have said it that way, but that was how we thought. And that was how we lived. We knew God was there, but He was there to help us when we had a need. And you know what? If we called on God for help and He didn't help, well then forget Him. That was how we were. I'm the worthy one, not Him. I'm the one God is supposed to please. See, this was our view of God. This was how you viewed God before you were saved. He was your servant, and He was there to do your bidding. But at conversion, this whole mindset is reversed. See, we come to the stark realization that God didn't have to save me. He could have left me in my sin. I don't even deserve my next breath. In fact, the only thing I deserve is His condemnation. God is the only one who's worthy. He's worthy of my obedience. He's worthy of my worship. He's worthy of my sacrifice and my life. See, that's the change of mindset that evidences the change of heart when a person gets saved, right? If you haven't learned how to give, if you don't desire to give, if you don't want to give, then you don't know the one who gave His Son for you. God's not your servant. He's your master. He's your king. He's your Lord. He doesn't owe you anything, whereas you owe Him everything. 
and the person who still thinks that God owes him something, they still need to repent. They may even need to get saved. Right? We read from Colossians 3. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to greed, covetousness. This verse goes on to say, in them you once walked. See, these things were left behind when God saved you. God makes this change in you or you're not saved. These things are either gone or they are being constantly fought against or you're not saved. If you can just continue on the way you were before you were saved, then you're not saved. God makes a change. He's not giving us a list to choose from here. This is what He does in the believer at conversion. And this is why Paul can be so matter-of-fact about giving. He knows the change that God makes in the heart when He saves them. What does he say is coming upon those who are still living lives of immorality and impurity and shameful passions and evil desires and greeds? He says, it's because of these things that the wrath of God is going to come upon the sons of disobedience. Right? If money is still your God, you bow down to it. You look to it for security, for comfort. You don't want to give it up. Even for good causes. And you don't belong to God. You still belong to the world. If He hasn't changed you and your view towards your possessions, you're not His. If God has never broken the power of greed in you, then you're still in bondage. When God saves you, He makes you a willing giver. And you learn how to give. And I emphasize learn. You want to give and so you want to learn how to give. You may have years of overcoming seeing your possessions as your own to do what you wanted with. And now you're saying, no, no, I know God has given me everything, none of which do I deserve. He's held back what I do deserve. He owns me and he owns all that I have. And you start peeling back the hand. It grips your wallet. God's not your servant. He's your Lord. And you are his steward. Be a faithful one. The other change that comes from realizing God owns everything is that you resolve to grow in your giving. Right? You resolve to grow in your giving. Giving as a steward of God is something that you learn how to do. You grow in it because it involves faith. It involves trust. You're transferring your trust from the false God of money to the true God who owns everything and yet gave His Son to save you. He didn't withhold His Son. He owns it all, but he didn't withhold his greatest possession. Listen to what Paul says to the Corinthians about giving in 2 Corinthians. He says, but in 2 Corinthians 8, 7, he says, but just as you abound in everything. Remember all that we talked about to the Corinthians, how they abound in so many things. Right? He mentions some of them here. You abound in faith, utterance, right? the speaking of tongues and so forth, utterance, knowledge. And in all earnestness and in the love that we inspired in you. He says, you abound in all these things, guys. See that you abound in this gracious work also. He's talking about this collection of the saints. It's, it's not a matter of how much or how little you think you have. It is the realization that all that you have is from Him. And it belongs to Him. You've received from God, the Scriptures say, grace. Upon grace. 
all that you have is from God. It's, the, it's this realization of His abundant grace in your life that becomes the foundation for you to want to then abound in giving. God deserves your trust. He's worthy of your trust. He's worthy to be put first in everything. I don't have the right to control, not even myself, let alone my things. God has the control. He owns me. See, a steward is under the authority of another. I'm no longer my own master. I want to see to God's affairs. I want my life and my stewardship to show that Christ is my Lord and my Savior. I trust Him. I obey Him. This might mean that you need to sit down by yourself or maybe with your spouse. You need to talk about the commitment to start giving. Or maybe to start giving in a way that honors Christ. A way that expresses your gratitude for His grace in your life and your desire to abound in this graciousness of giving. Now this leads us to the third way that this passage challenges us to give. Give as an act of worship to God. Give as an act of worship to God. Look at what he says in verse 2, these instructions that he gives to the Corinthians. Of, we're back in chapter 16. It says, On the first day of the week, each one of you is to put aside and save, as he may prosper, so that no collections be made when I come. So Paul specifically mentions here, on the first day of the week. Now, this text here in, in Corinthians 16 is one of three New Testament texts that have been used to support that the early Gentile believers gathered to worship, not on Saturday, the Jewish Sabbath, but on Sunday, which was the first day of the week. So Luke records that this was the practice of the Christians in Troas. In Acts 20, verse 7, he says, On the first day of the week, when we gathered together to break bread. So the breaking of bread there is referring to remembering the Lord in communion. So what was the significance of the church gathering on Sunday as opposed to a Saturday? Well, the Gospel tells us that it was on Sunday, the first day of the week, when the Lord first appeared to the disciples alive from the dead. Jesus said that He would be in the grave for three days and then He would rise again. But did you think about it? Could have been two days. Could have been four days. Could have been seven days. But He chose the third day. And that third day was a Sunday, the day after the Sabbath, the first day of the new week. He chose to appear on the day after when, all, when the Jews had been told to meet. So there's something significant here. There's, there's a newness to this. Christianity is not just another version of Judaism. There's a new covenant now between God and His people. They were to worship Him not in the old ways. Not in the sacrifices in the temple. Now they were to worship Him in spirit and in truth. What better way for His people to gather than on the first day of a week in commemoration of one of the central realities of the Gospel, the resurrection of Christ from the dead. The day they saw Christ alive was the day their hopes were fulfilled. Joy was restored. The Sabbath was the day that God had sanctioned for rest after the first creation. Now, as a result of the resurrection, we have a new creation. 
We are new creations in Christ. And now we have, as a result of the resurrection, rest in Christ. He is our Sabbath rest. And so to commemorate the resurrection, it became the practice of the apostles and the early church to meet on the first day of the week. Sundays. They didn't call it Sunday. That was a Roman word. They just called it the first day of the week. Paul seems to avoid the use of that word. They just call it the first day of the week. The Apostle John, speaking in Revelation, he's the one who calls this, and and there's no direct connection, but it appears to be that is what he's saying. He calls it the Lord's day. Notice he doesn't just call it the Lord's morning. We have an evening service tonight. This is still the Lord's day at 5 p.m. when we gather. I encourage you to be there, to worship Him. You need rest. Yeah, we need physical rest. Our real rest is in Christ, and He'll give you the strength and the grace that you need. Make it your priority to worship with His people when they gather. Don't forsake it. We meet at 5 p.m. on the Lord's day, not just the Lord's morning. That doesn't mean, though, that Sunday has replaced the Sabbath. Uh, You know, it's not that Sunday is the Christian's Sabbath, so to speak. No, Christ is our Sabbath. In Christ, though, we'd only rest, we don't rest only on the Sabbath. No, we rest every day. We don't worship the Lord on only one day. We worship the Lord every day and in everything that we do. Whatever we do in word or deed, we do it all in the name of the Lord. And when the church gathered on the Lord's day, it's clear that included in its worship the regular giving of money. Now, just as Paul knew uh, when they gathered, he also knew they, the, um, they did, uh, when they gathered, that, the, that giving was something that all the churches did in their worship. This one who had given their life for them, now they set a day aside and they gave. We worship Him with joy out of grateful hearts, right? Joy for our redemption. The ransom price has been paid. We've been set free in Christ because He gave. And so we respond in turn by showing our gratitude through giving. See, the one whose sins have been forgiven, whose burden has been lifted, who's been set free from bondage to sin, been given the gift of eternal life, all freely. You didn't have to earn that because you couldn't earn that. It was given to you freely. Then we worship Him with joy out of grateful hearts. He shouldn't have to command us to give. He doesn't command us to give. Paul didn't command the churches of Galatia here to give. He says he directed them. And he's also directing Corinthians. The word can mean command as if it comes from authority, but, but how is Paul really using his authority here? He's using his authority as an apostle to make arrangements that will simply help the process of gathering this special collection for the saints. The direction is about the gathering, not about you giving. He shouldn't have to command his people to give. He's not mandating here that people give. Giving that's commanded doesn't honor God. But giving that is self-initiated, voluntary, from a delighted and grateful heart for the redemption that they have in Christ. Paul tells them in verse 2, he says, Each one of you is to put aside and save. The idea here is that, that this is a matter between you and the Lord. This is your offering to God. There's a problem if you have to need to be commanded to give out of love. If I have to command you to take your wife out on your anniversary, you've got a problem, man. 
You do it out of love. Same with your giving. That's exactly how Paul describes how that they should give when he speaks to them again in 2 Corinthians 8. He says, but just as you abound in everything, in faith and utterance and knowledge and in all earnestness and in the love we inspired and you see that you abound in this gracious work also. I'm not speaking this as a command. He explicitly says it. I'm not going to command you. But it's proving through the earnestness of others the sincerity of your love also. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that you through His poverty might become rich. How do you know that God has done a work of grace in you? When you start emulating that same grace towards others. Christ became poor so that you might become rich. He existed for all eternity in glorious, majestic splendor and perfect, unbroken fellowship with the Father and with the Spirit. And yet to rescue you in your sin, He set all His rights as God aside. He became a man in perfect, willing submission to the Father. The fullness of God still dwelt in Him. He was still fully God and still deserved the praise and the honor and the worship of all creation. And yet He veiled it all. He was found in appearance as a man, a man of no distinction, no different than anyone else. Of all the places to be from, he chose to be from Nazareth, a place that that had the reputation that nothing good ever came from there. As far as status goes, he was poor. All of creation belonged to him, and yet he became a man with no earthly wealth of any kind. He said, I only have a place to sleep, to lay my head. And yet as poor as he was by worldly standards, he was rich in what we needed most. Righteousness. And out of mercy and by grace, he gave it to us so that we could stand righteously before a perfectly holy God. Isn't that amazing? He bore the wrath that we deserved. He drank the cup of God's wrath down all the way to the very dregs. He died in our place and then he rose again. And through the gospel, He has called you and He has redeemed you and He has delivered you and He has freed you. Everything that you have is from Him. Your home, your car, your bank account, your kids, your wife, your life, your husband. You're just a steward. And so you seek to give as God prospers you so that others will be enriched. Maybe through your giving, you open doors for the gospel. Opportunity of doing good that other people stand back and say, how do you give like that? Why would you care about me? No one should have to command you to give. It's simply the result, the product of realizing how gracious God has been towards you in Christ. Paul says it. It's in relation to how the Lord has prospered you. He says, as He may prosper, Paul says. You're to make this decision privately before you come. You don't wing it when you get here. You think about this. You pray about this. You be intentional about this. He specifically says he doesn't want any collections to be made when he comes. See, this is an act of worship between you and God you're giving. Have you ever noticed we don't pass a plate? You may have come from a church where the plate was passed. Nothing wrong with that. From the very start of this church, we've simply had a box in the back. Just like the church from which we came, Community Bible Church. 
Never passed a plate. It's not something we advertise as like metal on our chest. It just simply reflects our posture towards giving. It's between you and the Lord. It's the way you worship God. So when you want to give, you walk back to that box back there. Of course, now you can give through this. You can give online. Make it convenient and easy. We're not going to be the ones pressuring you. We're not going to be the ones manipulating you to give. There are no gimmicks. We're not going to turn down the lights. We're not going to play soft music. We're not going to get everybody emotional with our appeals. You make your offering to God as a part of your worship of Him. Your gratitude for His Son. Some churches choose to make the offering a part of the worship service. I think that's fine. I, I can, I do. I certainly see a place for that. In fact, I've thought sometimes, is there a way we can incorporate it into our service as a part of our worship? But I've simply maintained. I want this to be, no collections are made when I come. God is at work in you. You're the one coming to me saying, how do I give? You don't know. Someone says, oh, there's a box back there. That's it? Yeah, that's it. That's all there is. As you give, whether you put a check back there or some money in an envelope, or as you give online, here's what I would ask you to do. You remember that you remember that when you worship here, like this morning, on the first day of the week, part of that worship is what you've been giving. Is what you give. So pray that God will use it for His glory and use it for His purposes. Don't just give. Give as an act of worship to God. Now, as I've mentioned, this this collection here in in 16, um, it was a special collection for the poor in Jerusalem. So this was a a special occasion that Paul is calling them to give towards. Special need. But I think we can see that as Paul discusses the preparations for the collection, that he's... He's, he gives some important principles that we can use to guide our giving in the church. So, as he mentioned in verse 1, there are some, these are the same instructions that he's given to all the other churches in Galatia. So, these are general principles that apply to any church and any, any church setting. And so, as you seek to give as an act of worship to God, here's five principles that can guide you. Five principles for your giving. Could be six, could be seven. I've chosen five. The first principle is give regularly. The church meets regularly. We meet on the first day of the week. The church makes regular collections on that day. We open that box. We take what is what is in there out. And therefore, we should give regularly to the Lord's work. Now, not everyone gets paid every week. We understand that. Some people get paid every two weeks. Some people once a month. Some do contract work, so you get paid somewhat irregularly. So how do we coordinate our giving with the church's weekly collections? That's between you and the Lord. Some people may choose a weekly amount that they will give, even though they aren't necessarily paid every week. Uh, But I think it's a good rule of thumb to follow this. As often as you receive income, give back to the Lord. As often as you receive income, you give back to the Lord. Every time God provides for you, 
you give back to him. So whether you're writing a check, whether you're giving online, make it your goal to give regularly to the Lord. God provides for us every day. We should give regularly back to him. The second principle is give individually. Paul says, each one of you. He says, on the first day of the week, each one of you should give to the Lord. So individual giving, it means everyone is to participate in giving to the Lord. Every church should aim for 100% participation in giving. We don't know that. I don't know what you give. I don't even know if you give. But that's our, that's our hope for you. Is that you're worshiping God through your giving and you're doing it regularly, each one of you. So parents, you should be teaching your children how to give to the Lord. So whether you give your kids an irregular allowance, you pay them for specific chores, or they have some means of some income coming in, Maybe they give, they get money for their birthday, for Christmas, or whatever from time to time. You should teach them to set aside a portion of that to give to the church. When you give to the church, you're giving to the Lord. Everyone should participate in giving to the Lord. Now, not everyone may give the same amount. We'll talk about that in just a second. But everyone should give. So that's the second principle for giving this morning. It's to give individually. Third principle. Give intentionally. Give intentionally. We see this in the phrase in verse 2, each one should put aside and save. In other words, our giving to the Lord, it should be intentional, not random, not haphazard. This means you know what you plan to give before you arrive at church. God wants our giving to be thoughtful, prepared, planned out in advance. And so the Bible tells us, set aside a sum of money to give to the Lord. So we should think ahead. We should know exactly what amount we're giving to God before we give. And once again, the best time to set it aside is when you receive it. Each time you receive from the Lord, you set aside a sum of money to give back to the Lord. Now, there's going to be other times when you give spontaneously to the Lord. There's some need, like a special need, like we see here, a special collection. And we're just... That's when we pass the plate, by the way, when we have a special need. Maybe there's a visitor... Uh, guest speaker or someone and we just feel the Lord's urging to take a collection for them. That's when we'll pass the plate. Other than that, it's the box in the back. But you, on your part, are to give intentionally. It should be regular. It should be intentional. It should be on the first day of the week. Each one of you put aside and save, it says. So we're to give regularly, individually, and intentionally. The fourth principle is to give proportionately. Give proportionately. Paul says each one of you are to give as he may prosper. Another way that we could be understanding this is in keeping with his income. In other words, not everyone gives the same amount when they give. As he may prosper. It means those who have more give more, while those who have less give less. And no one should feel bad about that. In fact, that's how God designed it to be. If you can't give a lot because you don't have a lot, you don't worry about that. God is pleased when you give and you give out of obedience to His Word and out of worship to Him and you give as He prospers you. So you give proportionately. It means giving a portion of what the Lord gives to you to the Lord. And of course, the question on everyone's heart is, well, what is that portion that we are to give? Um, Once again, that is between you and the Lord. Your giving is between you and the Lord. What you give is between you and the Lord. 
We know that the Bible mentions in the Old Testament about the tithe. It's 10% of the income. And that would be, by the way, your gross income, not your net after taxes come out. You give first to the Lord, not to the country. You give first to the Lord. Proverbs 3.9 says, Honor the Lord from your wealth and from the first of all your produce. The tithe is mentioned in Scripture long before the law was given to Moses. And Jesus affirmed that the tithe, he affirmed the tithe in the New Testament as well. But once again, the tithe, the tithe of 10%, that's a starting point. The Bible also says that we should give generously and sacrificially. So for someone with little income, the tithe, that can be a great sacrifice. For someone with a much larger income, the tithe is really not much of a sacrifice at all. And so there are many people who give much more than a tithe because they can and because their desire is to see God there use their money for ministry and missions and for spreading the gospel to people who need to hear the good news of Christ. The Bible says your giving reveals your heart. What do you really care about in life? What things are most important to you? Are you storing up treasure here on earth or are you storing up treasure in heaven? Right? The Bible makes it clear. You can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead. You are to give proportionately, friends. Each one of us should give in keeping with our income. Some people can give a much smaller portion of their income. And others can give a much larger portion. Again, portion. And, and once again, it's not the actual amount that matters so much as your heart in the giving and that you are giving. The, the proportion you give is between you and the Lord. The last principle is give freely. Paul says that he wants no collection to be made when he comes. He doesn't want the church service to be centered around money. What a sad display of a lack of God's worth and faithfulness when the church leaders resort to gimmicks and manipulation and pressure to get their people to give. You can give online. There's a box in the back. That's how you can give. Your giving is to be a part of your worship of God. God provides for you and He provides through you to the church. And that should be done regularly by each one with intention according to how God provides for you. It shouldn't ever be, need to be commanded. It should be something every member of the church does cheerfully and therefore freely. You desire to honor the, and worship the one who gave himself for you? One of the most basic ways that you can do this, one of the ways that evidences that God has changed your heart is you give. Money's no longer your God, friends. You have a far, far better protector and provider and sustainer and satisfier and savior in Jesus Christ. Let that be reflected in your giving. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we acknowledge that this touches on, on our faith greatly. Money is such a deceitful, counterfeit God. We think there's security there and there's not. You can go in an instant. One, one medical situation and all our reserves are gone. You're our provider. You're our sustainer. You are truly the giver that we should long to emulate. You have nothing back to save your people. And we are grateful. Let us show that gratitude by our trust in you by our worship of you through our giving. And we ask this in Christ's name and for this help in Jesus' name. Amen.